Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful. God is so faithful and so gracious and merciful, and it's just wonderful. Um, well, here we are again, the Lord's Day, and as I reminded us, this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Uh, by way of introduction, last week we looked at James, and we saw that we're to rejoice greatly in our humble circumstances, because when we humble, or when we are humble in spirit, and we cry out to God, He exalts us into His kingdom for eternity. That is the glory of humility. And we saw that the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, and that means that this non-believer who's putting his trust in everything is to rejoice when he's faced with the reality that like the flowering grass, he too will fade away in all he has. And this humiliation or act of being brought low is God's aim of bringing that non-believer to humility of spirit so that instead of placing our hope in material things, that man, woman, boy, or girl might place their trust in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness, new life here and now, and eternal life in God's sin-free kingdom. The last thing we looked at last week is the most important thing, and that is we are to glory in God. That is everything He does. He does for His glory. He created the universe for His glory. He created you for His glory. He slaughtered His Son for His glory so that He could return you and return me to worthy vessels who were rightly able to then bring Him glory. And so we pick up today where we left off last week in the book of James. And if you have your Bible with us, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. And if you are able, please stand as we honor the reading of the Lord. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your great grace and Your great mercy and Your glorious reign. Lord, thank You for uh, delivering us from the bondage of sin into Your kingdom through the blood of Your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray today that everything that comes out of these stammering lips today would just be to point people to the truth that is you. Lord, that they would behold you, God alone. Father, I pray that your glory would shine through all that we do today, Father, and that your spirit would humble the heart that needs to be humbled. Lord, that it would ravish the heart that needs to be ravished. That it would create a new heart where a new heart needs to be created. And that all things that we do think, say would be to your honor and to the exaltation of your son, Jesus. And we pray this now in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. One thing I've been trying to recently reconcile in my heart and mind is that Scripture in and of itself is not meant to be the ends by which we assent to actual intellectual knowledge of, memorize, and then go on our merry way thinking ourselves Christians just because we did those things. The Scripture in and of itself are words of truth that point to the truth. 
which is what we are to have, hold, cherish, and meditate on. That is God alone. Richard Wormbrand, he's long since been gone, put it this way in a short writing he did to the, uh, about the underground church. He says, quote, God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Theology is the truth about the truth about the truth. A good sermon is the truth about the truth about the truth about the truth. None of it is, or it is not the truth. The truth is God alone. Around this truth, there's a scaffolding of words, of theologies, and of exposition. None of these is of any help in times of suffering. It is only the truth himself who is of help. And we have to penetrate through sermons, through theological books, through everything which is mere words, and be bound up with the reality of God himself. When I tell the West of many horrendous sufferings with which I and my fellow prisoners had to contend with, I've often been asked, which Bible verse helped and strengthened you during those times? My answer is, no Bible verse was of any help. It's sheer can't and religious hypocrisy to say this Bible verse strengthens me or that Bible verse helps me. Bible verses alone are not meant to help. We knew Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you pass through suffering, you realize that it was never meant by God that Psalm 23 should strengthen you. It is the Lord who can strengthen you, not the psalm which speaks of Him so doing. It's not enough to have the psalm. You must have the one about whom the psalm speaks. We also knew the verse, My grace is sufficient for thee. But the verse is not sufficient. It is the grace by which, or which is sufficient and not the verse, end quote. And I was thinking about this and I found it fascinating because it's true if we think about it. God never meant the words of Scripture would be sufficient for us and providing for us in our time of need. Only He Himself is able to satisfy every longing the human heart has, especially in times of need. This is when, or why when someone is dealing with great loss, presence is enough. That doesn't mean words are not helpful. They are. They can remind us of things we tend to forget. When we experience great loss, when we fight depression or battle sickness or face death, words help remind us of the one who is able to comfort us in those times. But the holy, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative words of Scripture is glorious truth meant to point us to the truth so what we actually behold is God Himself. James is writing to these Messianic Jews doing exactly what we should be doing with Scripture. He's using Holy Spirit-inspired words of truth to point these Christians to the truth that is and will always be sufficient for them in all of their longings their heartaches, all their times, but especially in times of desperate need when they're persecuted. And I merely want to try to do the same thing this morning. And so the first thing I want us to talk about is the crown of life. The crown of life, if you look back down at verse 12, James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now I know explanations can become daunting, and I want to keep from them, but in order to use Holy Spirit-inspired words of truth to point to the truth, 
we must better understand some terms that James is using here. And so first, James says, the one who perseveres will be blessed. Blessed commonly refers to a state of happiness or being envied for some reason or something. We hear this a lot, though, don't we? Be blessed. God bless you. Lord bless you today. I'm blessed. Hashtag. Right? But according to scholars, who are obviously much smarter than me, a better way to understand this word in the context of Scripture is the transcendent, transcendent happiness of a life beyond care, labor, and death. That is a happiness that is not bound up in your circumstances. It's not bound up in your bank account. It's not bound up in your spouse or your children or your accomplishments or this or that. It's a transcendental happiness that has to be outside of yourself and that can only come from beholding the presence of God. Because in the midst of suffering and persecution, I rarely hear anybody say, I'm blessed. But that's exactly James's point here. And the next word he uses, persevere. It means to stand your ground, to endure or withstand amidst persecution. This, this is the anti-Christian bully on the schoolyard threatening you with a pounding and you dig your heels into the ground and then take a whooping anyway, but you still stand your ground. Stand firm. And James uses the word trial here. Earlier in verse 2, and that's why it's it kind of important, he used it in a, what we call a second person plural, and you go, God, Pastor, I didn't come for an English lesson, but this is important. Earlier, he was talking about y'all's trials. Just you out there, your trials in verse 2. Here he's using this in what we consider a third person singular that affects the subject of the sentence. And the subject of the sentence is the blessed man. You say again, Pastor, English, not important. Why is this important? It's important because James is talking to you. He's talking to me. And he's talking to you about something incredibly important that we had better take notice of. And here's a quick example I'll give you. We tend to do this when we read scripture. The other day uh, in discipleship, we were talking about something. And my wife said, you know, when we first became Christians, we'd read the Bible and be like, that's not talking about us. That's talking about somebody out there, somebody else, not me. Not me. And we tend to do that a lot. James is talking to you. He's talking to me. And anybody that reads this verse, he's talking to on an individual level. You will be blessed when you have persevered under trial. You see, trials, temptations, they should be a way of life for the Christian. Because it forms and strengthens us with the end result that our likeness, our, our, our nature and our demeanor would be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, reading this, we should want to know exactly what type of trial James is talking about here, since he's talking to us. And I want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And people say, that's a circular argument. No, it's not. You're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And what I want to do is I want to read some other verses that use the word blessed in a similar way to see what James is talking about here. And so, Luke 6.22 says this, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. James 5.11 We count those blessed who endured. 
You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. James is reminding these Christians that persecution is very real. They were being chased out of their city. They were being beaten, mocked. They were having their church shut down. They were being hunted down and killed because of their unwavering faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah. And blessed are they, James says, and blessed are you. If you persevere under trial. Because once you pass the test, we'll be approved and receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. Persecution will come, church. It will not be pleasant. Revelation reminds us that persecution and martyrdom are real. And Revelation 6 says, When I, the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Sabina Wormbrand, she's, she was Richard Wormbrand's wife, she said, when the church does not feel the pain with those that are part of them, whether in this building or those being persecuted across the world, when the church does not feel the pain of those or with those that are part of them, the church's nerves become dead. John Fox wrote a book called Book of the Martyrs. Um, he said, quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He tells uh, uh, in this book about many, many martyrs throughout church history. And he tells about a lady named Felicitas. She was actually a well-known lady of a wealthy Roman family. She had seven sons. All of them were martyred. They told her to recant her faith in Jesus or they were going to kill her sons. And she prayed for them so that they would stay strong and was forced to watch every one of her children martyred. And then when they figured out she wasn't going to recant, they martyred her. Blandina, he tells another story. A slave girl was of weak constitution and thought not be able to endure torture. But her fortitude under persecution was so strong that her tormentors became exhausted with their evils against her. She was then taken into an amphitheater, suspended on a piece of wood, and exposed as food for lions. She prayed for and encouraged her companions as she waited her suffering, but none of the lions would touch her. This happened twice. These are written accounts that we have throughout history. The last time she was brought with a 15-year-old boy named Ponticus. Fifteen. The crowd was so enraged by their faith that their gender nor their age was respected and they were subjected to the severest punishments and tortures. Blandina was torn by lions, scourged, put into a net, and tossed about by a wild bull, placed into a red-hot metal chair without clothes. And when she was finally able to speak, she continued to utter words of encouragement to her companions, exhorting them to hold faith and hold firm their faith. Fifteen-year-old Ponticus was faithful until death, and when her tormentors could not force her to recant, she was killed by the sword. Church, I don't know what persecution will look like in our century, but it's happening and will continue to happen because Satan hates God and he hates the church and he hates the people of God, especially those ones that stand firm. If the world was a paper 
The persecution coming against the church is like an ink blot. Slowly but steadily and surely seeps across to cover the entire page. We don't think much of it because it's only happening in other parts of the world. The only difference is in this country, the persecution at this point, it's not martyrdom. It's shutting churches. It's uh, telling you to keep Merry Christmas to yourself. It's telling you to keep your religion to yourself and not cram it down my throat while I cram mine down your throat. Satan will continue to come against the church of Jesus Christ. And James wants us to keep this in mind when we face persecution. And by way of application here, let me tell you of another martyr in the history of the church. Ignatius was the church seer at Antioch. He was being transferred in A.D. 110 to his martyrdom, an old guy. And uh, every city he went to, he encouraged the churches there and wrote numerous letters to them about keeping strong in the faith and, and keeping strong in Jesus Christ. And when he learned that some of the brethren, that is, some of the other Christians, wanted to free him, he wrote them a letter. Here's what he says, I quote, Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. So be it. Only may I win Christ Jesus. God says in Revelation 2, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribula tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Church, if you're faithful to Jesus, you're going to be hated and persecuted. It's not something that just happens in the past. It's not something that just happened to the disciples. It will happen. And James says to you, what will it be? Comfort or crown? What price are you willing to pay to receive the crown of life? Or I guess a better question we should ask ourselves is, are we willing to pay any price to receive the crown of life? Second thing I want us to look at is the enticement of sin. So James reminds us that we persevere in a trial, we will have the crown of life. The enticement of sin. Look with me again at verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, this is the important part, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So I want to quickly handle verse 13 and then 14 and 15 together. But consider that in the beginning, everything God created was good. Brought the woman to the man, very good. After, they chose disobedience, though, didn't they? Hopefully none of us are thinking, gee golly, Josh, Pastor, I'd totally do better. We wouldn't do better. If we would... We'd do better every single day of our life. We wouldn't sin. Anyway, Adam and Eve chose death, and as a result, everything in creation, and even the creation itself, was cursed by God. But, but let me back up a bit. Adam and Eve sin, they cover themselves and hide because they hear God. Don't miss how important this is. They first walked and talked with God. Now they hear the sound of His voice and they're hiding, fearing God because of their sin. That's the effect our sin should have on us. We should fear because of what we've done. God comes and calls for Eve. 
Does he call for the serpent? He calls for the man, doesn't he? Listen up, men. What does this you have done? And Adam says, well, God, I take full responsibility for my actions. I failed you, I disobeyed you, and I deserve death. He didn't say that, though, did he? He said, it was the woman you gave me. So not only is he not taking responsibility for his own actions and his sin, out of pride and arrogance, he's blaming his wife and God. James is reminding us here that when we're tempted, it's not God's fault. It's our fault for choosing death in the first place. Does God allow us to be tempted? Sure. We talked about that in a previous message in this chapter. But God is not the one tempting us because that would be outside His perfect, holy, and just character. And He's not tempted by evil. So when you're tempted and sin, and it turns out that you get in trouble or lose privileges, knock, knock, kiddos, don't go blaming somebody else for your actions. If you are tempted and sin and have a fight with your spouse, it's not their fault if you sinned because you were tempted. If you get reprimanded at work because you were tempted and you sin, it's not your boss's fault you got in trouble. Don't blame God for the choices you make. That is what Adam did and it's rooted in pride. Adam was told to guard the garden, to keep it and to watch over and protect it, including his wife. How many men do you know that would willingly stand idly by while another person tries to harm their wife? I'm glad no hands went up, because that would concern me. But this is exactly what Adam did. You say, well, pastor, I would never do that. Maybe if somebody was coming at your wife, physical harm, you would stand in the way, but... And dare I step lightly here, do you stand outly by and let your wife drift spiritually or be influenced by society, culture, or do everything else because you're too busy overworking, hunting, fishing, golfing, watching TV, going out with the guys? I need to back up some. I'm getting off point a little bit and a few hard stairs. The point James is trying to make is that we have a temptation to blame shift, don't we? Somebody else is the reason we're in the predicament we're in. Somebody else is the reason I chose to sin and treat that person badly. Somebody else is the reason, God, it's probably your fault because you did create them. And James tells us we usually are tempted to blame God directly or indirectly. Directly might look like this. God, why would you do that? God, why would you allow that to happen? Plain and simple. Indirectly is a little more difficult to pinpoint, isn't it? You know what that looks like? Complaining. Wishing you had this or that. Not being content with what God has graciously given you when the only thing we deserve is death. Bottom line is this. If it is not God tempting you, it's not God tempting me. It's our unholy desire that tempts us and carries us away into sin and then it brings forth death. Let me see if I can give you an illustration here. The concept of being carried away is an intimate word picture, so I'm going to try to paint one for you. Imagine newlyweds who just got hitched. The wedding was beautiful, the flower arrangements to die for, the food spared no expense, the dancing, oh, the dancing, the music, the speeches, and the atmosphere was just electric. 
The groom and bride are swooped away to their blissful honeymoon. Butterflies are fluttering. Rose petals are everywhere. There might be some romantic music cooing in the background. The easy-on-the-eyes groom picks up the beautiful bride and carries her away romantically as they stare into each other's eyes longingly. I know what you're thinking. Wow, I got the tingles, Pastor. I didn't know you were such a romantic. Well... <laughs> I'm painting a picture for you so I can say this. That's what our sinful lust is doing to us when we allow it to entice us. It paints this rosy pictured situation with all sorts of wonderful promises. There might even be romantic music cueing in the background. I don't know what your sin looks like. And then it picks us up, swoops us away in and through the door of sin, just as the groom did the bride. And the enticement of our flesh gives way to lust, and through the wicked matrimony of evil, it comes together to conceive and birth sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. I know all the hopeless romantics are going, Thanks a lot, Pastor. I'll never be able to romanticize love again. But there's a reason I did that. I'm hoping that when the lust of the flesh comes to you, hoping to swoon you off your feet and carry you through the door of sin, that you think about that image of the bride and groom, which is really a whole other sermon in itself, and remember that if this matrimony is consummated, it will birth sin and will bring forth death. John Owen, he was a, a great theologian and professor at Oxford, died in 1683. He wrote a book called Indwelling Sin of the Believer. It's a great book. It's based on Romans 7.21 about Paul saying there's a principle or a law within me of sin and I don't like it. But this book is kind of like a field guide on how to recognize the enemy within us. Because we still have an enemy within us. After conversion, we still have this indwelling sin and it's at enmity with God. And that's an ugly word if you look it up. It means a deep-seated hatred of God manifesting in this sin that resides in us. Owen lays out a comprehensive strategy throughout this book and how to recognize and mortify, that is, kill the enemy, the sin in us. And one of my favorite quotes comes from him. It's, it says, quote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. James reminds us here that we're not to blame God for being carried away by our own lust. And let me just throw this out there real quick. Lust is anything you look at with an unholy desire. It could be people. It could be money. It could be work. It could be anything that you look at in an unholy way. He reminded us that when we're carried away by our lust, what we're supposed to do is recognize the problem or what it is and these unholy desires that stem from pride and selfishness. If we recognize that and are able to identify the issue, we're better equipped to know how to handle it. We'll then be able to, in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, be killing sin before it's killing us. And so just a quick recap, James reminds us that if we persevere under persecution, we will receive the crown of life God promised. Be mindful of the enticement of sin. It's not God's, he's not the one tempting you. God is not to blame, we are. And then third, I want us to see the gift of Christ. The gift of Christ in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 16 is an important exhortation regarding the next sentence. For James to tell these Christians and us not to be deceived, that means 
we or they are being deceived to believe all sorts of things, or he wouldn't have said that. And in context here, James must be referring to what he's been writing about in the first 15 verses. Trials, testing, temptations, wisdom, humble circumstances, humiliation and persecutions. Now aside from wisdom and humble circumstances, these things in and of themselves are not necessarily good, but the, the, the idea is what they produce that's good. It's the good and perfect gift from above that culminates in the ultimate gift of God. Every good thing and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Notice James' contrast here in verse 17 to the pure holiness in light of God, to that of darkness and shadows. God is the Father of lights because He created light and He is light. Light casts out darkness. Darkness is synonymous to sin. Men hate the light because it exposes their evil deeds. In God, God, there's pure light. His perfect holiness. God said, let there be light. And there was light. He, that is Christ, is the light of the world. And in Him there was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not comprehend it. Normally light of any kind will cast a shadow. You can stand outside on a sunny day and recognize that. Shadows represent not only darkness, but also tell us there's a shift or change taking place. James says the God, or that God is the Father of lights with whom there's no variation, no shifting shadow, and no change. There's no variation in the light that the Father casts because God is pure light and does not change. He does not cast any shifting shadows because He's holy and in Him there's no darkness. I hope you all can see that. Now, consider verse 18, how James shows us that God regenerates us by the power of His will through the Spirit. Without the work of God to do this for us, we're lost in darkness. I know we don't want to think that way, but that's just the truth, folks. And without hope for all eternity. The word of truth is the good news, the gospel, which God uses as the power into salvation. It can dispel the darkness and bring us forever into the light of Christ. Let me see if I can paint another word picture for you. There's this movie I watched a long time ago. I'm not going to tell you the name because I don't recommend you watch it, but that was back when I was a heathen. It's about a few kids who have night terrors, and as they grow older, one becomes deathly afraid of the dark to the point where he keeps batteries in his drawer. The movie centers around these kids as they grow up and the reason for their night terrors. Apparently, there are these dark apparitions that appear and attack them and try to take them into a dark, foreboding other world. And the only thing that dispels them is light. The story unfolds with Julia, the main character, losing her friend Billy, the one that was deathly afraid of the dark. She meets some of his roommates who share similar fears, and they tell of their own night terror scares. And after experiencing some attacks from these apparitions, she goes to her boyfriend for help, who drugs her thinking she's crazy and calls the psychiatric doctor to come pick her up, who she's been seeing. And so she comes to her senses and takes off. Wouldn't you know it, she gets trapped in a subway when it's dark, all by herself. So she has to take a train back home as the only passenger. And when the train stops and the lights start to burst out one by one, she freaks out, understandably so, and runs away. Then she gets attacked by these dark apparitions again. She's fighting them off and starts hurting them, but then when she comes to, she realizes she's hurting train engineers that are actually trying to help her. Needless to say, they finally commit her to the psychiatric hospital. 
And then she's attacked once more in her room. This time she's dragged into the closet and into the alternate dimension of darkness. When the psych doctor comes into her room, she's nowhere to be found. And he almost looks like he's going to start to believe her stories. He's, he, he slowly opens the closet door with sincerity and a look of dread on his face, but he sees nothing. But from Julia's point of view, she's screaming and banging on the transparent wall, separating them, pleading with the doctor not to close the door because it's her only source of light. Well, he closes it and she turns around with tears rolling down her cheeks only to face a myriad of dark apparitions in the darkness. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're probably thinking you're, you might have some nightmares of your own, but that's not my point. My point is here that James wants us to understand why it's so important to be full of the light of God. Here's what he's telling us in verse 18. You and I are joy. We walk in darkness, we live in darkness, and we're scared of the dark. The difference between the psychiatric doctor in this story and God is that God breaks through all of that proverbial darkness and that separating wall and causes his light of Christ to shine in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. His light dispels the darkness with such power and force that it's almost as if an explosion goes off and it just shoots up into the air and disappears. That is why you need Christ, and that is why I need Christ. If you have not come to a place in your life whereby you understand the only one to blame for your sin is you, and then realize that you need the light of Christ to dispel the darkness, one day you too will end up like Julia, enshrouded in darkness, and it won't be pleasant because the darkness represented here is the judgment of God. God is light, and His light will kill the darkness. And you never have to fear again. But you must repent. You must turn away from your sin and you must put your faith in Jesus, confessing Him as Lord. That means He has to be over your life and in charge, not you, not somebody else, Jesus. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead three days later. God promises that if you do that, He gets the glory, you get the grace, and the gift of Christ is yours to cherish forever. And please, don't miss this. You can have the crown of life despite the enticement of sin. When you realize that the Father of lights can dispel the darkness, darkest darkness in your life, and then entwine your life with Jesus and embrace the gift of life for the rest of your eternal life, God can do that. You only have to submit. And that's what James is telling us today. You can have the crown of life. If you're, if, if you're a Christian, persevere, persevere. The promise is there and the promise has been kept. Jesus died. He came back from the grave. There is something there. If you're struggling with something, confess it. Don't, don't blame God. We all make our own choices. He's a, he allows us to do that. But it's not His fault we're being tempted. Don't blame God. Repent of that. And let God, through the gift of Christ, dispel the darkness in your life. Because without the light of Christ shining in every single one of us, we all have the potential to be the most vile individual.